The fact that today is called All Saints Sunday immediately begs an important question, which is, what do we mean when we use the word saint? What immediately comes to mind for you? What is likely is that the first people you think of among the saints are those who lived a long, long time ago, like St. Francis or St. Augustine. It's also very possible that you think of the word saint in Roman Catholic terms. After all, they are the ones who most openly and most comprehensively have a theology of sainthood. We think of saints, we think of Roman Catholics, whose faces appear on icons or whose names appear on Catholic churches or whose images appear on little statues or whose lives are celebrated in Roman Catholic feast days. There are lots of Roman Catholic saints in that way, including the most recently canonized Mother Teresa. In fact, there are so many Catholic saints that it is literally impossible to have an accurate count of how many there are. I've seen a range of estimates between, on the low end, less than a 1,000, and on the high end, more than 10,000. It's really helpful, frankly. <laughs> but what do Protestant Christians mean by sainthood? What do we mean when we talk about saints. More than likely for us, when we think of saints, it all begins with these lit candles on the altar. We think about those who have gone before us, who, in the words of the New Testament, have finished their course and their labor and have gone on into eternal life. We think about especially these people that we remember today, their lives, their legacies, their love. And we think about all those people who have shaped us and influenced us, knowing that in some way, in some mysterious way, they continue to shape and influence and inform us. That's the mystery of sainthood, isn't it? That even though they are no longer in our earthly physical presence, we believe in some very real, very spiritual way they are still with us. And in fact, that is reinforced by our theology of the liturgy. It's reinforced by the fact that we believe in some mysterious way that whenever we gather together in worship, whenever we are physically present in this sanctuary, we are not alone. Which means that whenever, for example, we recite the words of the Apostles' Creed and affirm the ancient creedal formula of the faith, we believe that their voices are joining with ours. It means that whenever we say the Lord's Prayer, it means that we can sense the echo and the reverberation of their voice within our spirit. It means that whenever we gather for communion, which, which we will do in a few moments, it means that we gather with the saints which after all is in our creed. We believe in the communion of saints, which means that when we partake of the body and blood of Christ, we do so with all of the saints of the past and with all of the saints in the present world all around us. But here's the most mind-blowing thing of all. We even gather at the communion table with all of the 
saints who are yet to come. It is one fabulously mysterious, singularly transcendent moment that when we gather at the communion table, we gather with saints past and present and future. That's what it means for a Protestant Christian to believe in saints. But more than likely, when you and I think of a saint, there's another group of people that we think of. Not those who have died, but even those saints in our lives who are still here. When you think of a saintly person, who do you think of? When you think of a saint who is still influencing your life, what names come to mind? I've got a list. I know you've got a list. Near the top of my list is one of my aunts. Aunt Alan, we'll call her. Everybody calls her Aunt Alan, even though her birth name was much longer than that. It was Karangalan. She's the sister of my father, who's here actually in the corner. His name is Maghirang. So you've got two siblings named Maghirang and Karangalan, and they've got lots of other siblings with equally long names. It's one of those rare moments that I'm actually grateful to simply be named McGray. <laughs> but Aunt Alan is still alive. She's well up into her 80s now. Back when she was just a young woman, her husband died in military service, leaving behind her and her two young children, a son and a daughter, my cousins. She never remarried, instead choosing to invest the fullness of her life into those two kids, as well as into the lives of her nieces and her nephews, including a particular nephew who stands before you today. She was one of the first people to ever invite me into church, into the worship sanctuary of a church. She was just as formative to the development of my faith as any other adult in my life. And even past childhood, into adolescence, and even into the years of my ministry, she has been and continues to be a spiritual source of wisdom and faithfulness. She, in so many ways, is my rock. During a particularly rough stretch of dark times for me not too long ago, a a three-year period where I was really struggling in many ways, it was my Aunt Alan who I would continue to call and who would call me for regular strength. And her phone calls would always begin with these words, McGray, I prayed for you this morning. And I knew she meant it. I knew she meant it because I'd visited her house so many times when I was living here before. And I knew that sitting right there in the corner of her living room was a chair. That was the first piece of furniture she would sit in when she got up every morning. In the early hours of every day, from 5 to 7 every morning, she would sit there in this chair, an old tattered, beaten-up, orange fabric swivel rocker that she calls her throne of grace. 
because it's on that chair she would sit and pull off the Bible on the nightstand next to it, open up her prayer journal, and she would pray and pray and pray and read the scriptures and pray some more. And I knew that during this rough period of my life, whenever I'd get up that morning, I knew she was praying for me. And so when she told me, McGray, I prayed for you for a full solid hour today, I knew she wasn't kidding. That's who I think of when I think of a saint. And I I suspect you've got saints in your life today too, don't you? Could be a parent or a relative. Could be a neighbor or a generous friend. Could be someone in your church small group. Could be someone that you see every day. Could be someone that you don't see enough. My aunt is one of those people. It's, it's the reason why when I first moved back last summer, she was one of the first people I made a point to visit because I knew that it was her prayers every single morning that brought me back. You know, I believe that we are filled with those saints, those saints in our lives who are still alive. It's a reminder of this very fundamental truth. You don't have to be dead to be a saint. You don't have to be memorialized in a candle to be considered a saint. It's what must have driven the Apostle Paul to begin his letters in a particular way. Sometime you should take a look at it. Look at the way he introduces many of his letters to the early churches. To the first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, all the way to the Philippians and to the Romans and the Thessalonians. He would begin his letter this way. Not, dearly beloved. Not, dear brothers and sisters of the first church of Thessalonica. Not, to the members of the First United Methodist Church in Philippi, he would always begin his letters to the saints. To the saints in Philippi, to the saints in Corinth and Achaia, to the saints in Thessalonica, to the saints in Ephesus. Yes, Ephesus, including the passage that we heard read moments Ago, Paul referred to the living Christians, to the people who are still active in the church, to the, to the people who were present as saints. Which raises this very interesting possibility that probably we would rather ignore, but is very true in Pauline theology. That among those that we would consider saints... We have to not only include those who lived a long time ago, or those who recently died, or those who were godly and righteous who are living in our midst. Paul would even say that those who would be considered saints have to include you and me. You've got to be kidding, Paul. Because it raises the possibility that there is a saint that you can see if you simply look 
in the mirror? Your mirror? That face that you see is the first thing you see every morning when you walk into the bathroom? That face? That face that's got bedhead hair and a new white-capped acne right in the middle of the nose and facial stubble from throughout the night? That face? That, that face with morning breath and a little bit of leftover dinner in the teeth and crusted drool coming out of the side of the lip? That That face that hasn't showered or had any coffee yet? That ugly thing in the mirror? Yeah, Paul would say. That's the face of a saint. Especially that face which is the last thing you see when you look in the mirror at night. That face. That that face that's had a very tired and long day. That face that has lived a life that previous day that is far, far from perfect. That face that has pondered one too many negative thoughts in the last day and even even acted on more of those negative thoughts than you care to admit. That, That face. That face who passed up an opportunity to do nice for someone else or even missed out on more opportunities than they care to admit. That face, that's that's the face of a saint. And Paul would say, yeah. For any of us who have been saved by the grace of God, for any of us who call ourselves Christians and dare to follow Jesus Christ, even with our imperfections, Paul would say, You're a saint. To which we would want to say to Paul, you've got to be kidding. It's in those moments that I like to remember a few things. The first is from a choice quote that I first read from the great Christian author G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton once wrote a biography of the great Saint Francis. You know Saint Francis. He was the lover of nature and animals. He wrote that peace prayer that we just love so much. In fact, our Pope, our current Pope, even venerated him so much as to take his name for himself. That Saint Francis. Chesterton once said that Saint Francis is to God for us as the moon is to the sun for us. What he meant by that is that if you and I ever dare to try to look fully and directly into the sun, that would be a big mistake. Our eyes would hurt. Our bodies would get damaged. There is no way that our finite, limited eyes and human bodies could possibly gaze fully and directly into the sun's intensity and radiance. And so, we have the moon. The moon, which does not in and of itself generate its own light. It doesn't produce energy or intensity. Its job simply is to reflect the sun's rays onto us so that by looking at the moon, we can see the light of the sun. 
Chesterton said that St. Francis, in fact, all of the saints, serve in that primary role. If you and I dare to try to comprehend the perfection and holiness and righteousness of God, our minds would be blown. Our finite human capacities couldn't possibly take in the full glory and brilliance of God's majesty. And so God has given to us the saints who are like the moon for us. These saints, they're not perfect. They don't generate their own light. They are not radiant in and of themselves. They are not God. All that they do is they simply reflect the glory of God through their actions and their behavior so that by observing the example of the saints, so that by living into the example of the saints, we can participate fully in the life and love of God. Oh, saints, saints are not perfect. They simply point to the one who is. Saints don't have it all together. They simply point to the one who does. And friends, when you look at it that way, it makes it very, very possible for you to be a saint. Because even though you and I aren't perfect, we are far from it. And even though you and I don't generate our own light because we can't, we have been saved by a God who has been working in our lives from the moment we are born so that we can simply be a reflection of God for the world. And when we do that, even with our flaws, even with our imperfections, we can live the saintly life. And we can move on to perfection, as Wesley said, even though we are not perfect ourselves. One of my favorite life experiences is a story that some of you may have heard recently. It's a story that Jim Harnish liked to tell often, not only in this church, but in other churches. But I'm very happy to share it with you now. It comes from a vacation that my two daughters and I went on four summers ago. We took a day trip from our town in Cherokee, Iowa, eight hours away to the Black Hills of South Dakota, and there to see one of our great national treasures, Mount Rushmore. We took in the breathtaking spectacle of those four images of those presidents carved into the granite, and then the girls and I went into a gift shop where I found this postcard a postcard that contained this image of Mount Rushmore before the images were carved into it. It's a picture from 1905. You can see the towering mountain of granite that rises 5,725 feet above sea level, overlooking the towers of ponderosa pines below it. In and of itself, it is a beautiful, majestic image. And you know what it reminded me of when I first saw it? It reminded me of the human existence, of the way you and I were born a lot like that raw, real natural mound of granite, never knowing at the time that we were born that what was deep inside us, whether we knew it or not, 
was an image that was waiting to be revealed. And so you and I lived our lives not knowing that eventually a sculptor was going to begin work on us. A sculptor who recognized that deep down inside each of us was an image of that sculptor that was waiting to be freed. And just like Gutsum Borglum and his team of sculptors, hundreds and hundreds of sculptors, took 14 years to carve out the images of those four presidents, that process of releasing the image from within us takes a long time. And what a life you and I have lived. Think about it in this way. You and I may have been born like untouched granite, but boy, has life shaped us since then. Think about all the highs and lows that you've been through. Think about all the trials and triumphs that you have persevered through. Think about the twists that have happened at every turn in your life that you simply weren't expecting. Could it be? Could it be? That just like that mountain of granite was slowly being chipped away to reveal something inside you, you can now see that your life is revealing something new, the image of God within you. Gutsum Borglum and his team would use a full range of techniques to release the image of those four presidents from the rock. They would sometimes use explosives to take out huge chunks. Or sometimes they would get right up close with little nail files to get right into the detail. Your life is like that. My life is like that. We've had moments that are major, cataclysmic, as well as subtle moments that we can only see in the rearview mirror. Our life is full of major and minor events, all of which are monumental moments that are singularly transformative so that you and I can move on to perfection so that God, who is the great sculptor, can release that image within us. And it simply means that you and I aren't perfect but we are in the hands of the one who is in the perfection business. That's what God's sanctifying grace means. It means, in the words of my friend Jim Harnish, that God loves us enough to meet us where we are, but loves us way too much to leave us there. It means that with our faults and with our flaws, God is still working to chip out those blocks of granite that are stubborn, to soften those hardened parts of our heart, to whittle away at those rough-edged parts of our personality that are abrasive and tough to hold on to, all the while, so that as we live our life, slowly but surely, day after day, the image starts to appear, the image of that God that is within us. But you know the most fascinating thing I've learned about Mount Rushmore? It's not finished yet. It's not complete. And in fact, it won't be finished in our lifetime. Not even in a thousand lifetimes, which is exactly the way Gutsum Borglum intended it. 
This is what he wrote in his journal. He said, I am allowing an extra three inches on all the features of the various presidents in order to provide stone for the wear and tear of the elements, which cuts the granite down one inch every hundred thousand years. Three inches would require 300,000 years to bring the work down to the point where I could say it was finished. In other words, the work will not be done for another 100,000 years, just as it should be. Paul put it this way. To the Philippian church, he said, I am confident of this very thing that the God who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in you until the day of Jesus Christ. Which means that even with your flaws, even with your blemishes, even with your rough days and your missed opportunities, God hasn't given up on you. And God's grace will stay with you to complete God's work of sculpting you Until the day of Jesus Christ, in other words, in light of eternity. Now, there is one place where this metaphor breaks down. It is just a metaphor after all. And I'll I'll, I'll be the first to acknowledge that it's not perfect because of this one final thing that I think bears stating. That in some ways, the act of being more like Jesus is not a passive act where we just sit there like a lump of granite and allow God to do all the work on us. That's not the way God's grace works. As Wesleyan people, as as Methodists, we believe in free will, which means that we are called to responsibility, that we have the capacity to be co-creators with God into our future, that yes, God empowers And it's God's grace that makes it happen. But God calls us to participate in that work of sculpting us into the image of God. And so on this day, when we honor those who've gone before us, we also receive a challenge to receive this grace with a sense of responsibility so that in those parts of our lives that need refining, We renew our commitment to confess our sins, to repent of our ways, to follow the long, narrow, and sometimes difficult journey of putting Jesus first, to do the things that we are reluctant to do, and to refuse to do those things that cause harm for the kingdom and for our lives. It is a grace that we've been given that calls us to holy and righteous living. And it is a grace that allows us, little old us, little old, broken, mistaken, sinful us, to reflect the light of God for the world so that they can see God's love made real for them. And you know what happens when we do that? That's a saintly thing to do. Let's pray.
God, I thank you for giving us the gift of sainthood, for calling to mind those persons in our lives who reflect the fullness of your glory, and for even calling us to do the same. In a few moments, as we offer our lives through our tithes and offerings, and as we prepare for Holy Communion, may this moment be for us a chance to renew our commitment to you. As we come forward for, com- for communion, may you call us to repentance and confession and renewed commitment so that we can truly become the people you've called us to be, not by our own strength, but by your power alone. For all these things, we are truly grateful. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And let all God's saints say, Amen.